Good morning, and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Smorridge, and joining us this week are Stephen Cheney and TQ, and hopefully later on we'll have Michael Chidester dropping in as well. Um, I think this is it. I think this is our last episode for the foreseeable future, where we'll be doing a kind of uh, kind of look back at 3227A, the Doe Ring of Gloss, and just kind of like giving some value judgments on it, saying how we feel about the text. Yeah, shoot for him with opinions as facts. <laughs> yeah. But before we do that, uh, what have you guys been up to in the last, uh, however long it's been since we recorded an episode? A month? Uh, T? Um, I fenced a foil competition or two and didn't do very well. Um, and I, uh, what else did I do? Oh, yeah, I spent some time playing with a weird um, model of fencing training based on René Guiona, who was the French national sabre coach in the 1980s through roughly 2000 or so, um, and was pretty much unique in modern fencing uh, for teaching people even up to the world championship and Olympic level exclusively in group lessons without any one-to-one private coaching. Um, uh, He had this set of exercises he called scales, um, which are kind of complex multi-step blade work exercises um, that build the practice fencing movements um, and are done first relatively static and then with increasing levels of footwork freedom uh, and adjustment between them as paired exercises between students. Um, So I wrote a couple of longsword uh, adaptations uh, based on some of those ideas and started playing with them a bit with a couple of the dudes in my club. Um, results are mixed so far, but I think they have some promises like warm-up and blade work practice. Um, so I guess I'll keep trying them for a month or two and then put them on the shelf for the next time I have to run a workshop. Um, and that's pretty much that. Cool. Steve, what have you been up to? I just... things but appropriately that's what hema jackets are for right well i mean i've been for example uh i've been wearing like two pairs of pants and uh along with like my tall socks and i replaced my regular under gloves for my sparring gloves with uh like warmer winter gloves okay yeah I'm reminded of when I did like i first started doing modern fencing and everybody in the club was complaining about how having to like do exercise wearing all of this gear was so hot and ridiculous um and i was just like <laughs> this stuff's amazing i don't know what you're on about yeah, yeah. Isn't it this entire outfit of... weighs less than like one of my gloves aren't there a bunch of swedes fencing outside in the arctic circle and, like it was the... getting a lot of header breaks as a result yeah there was what was his name um uh the guy who's really really good at sword and buckler and Sabre from um, Stockholm. Not Stanson? Yes, Stanson. Stanson. Um, his club basically all fence outside. And I think they said that, like, if you, once it gets below, like, minus 10, you should stop using steel and switch to synthetic because the steels break too much. Yeah, somebody at my club looked it up and uh, found the, came up with the number minus 30. Maybe it was minus 20 they cared about or something. But my impression is they go pretty hard. Uh, so. That probably doesn't help. Yeah, so I'm not really worried about 
And if it gets that cold here, then I'm probably just going to cancel class. Yeah. And um, what have I been up to? Bit of fencing in the park, a little bit of working on the book, which is a project which I think I've just accepted will never end anytime soon. Um, we played a little bit with uh, multiple opponents, low exchanges. Um, any hit is subtracts from your overall performance. Uh, ran a little experiment with that. And the fencing it produced was pretty trash and with loads of doubles. So small sample size, admittedly, but uh, I'll take a pinch of salt when I read that uh, live systems reduce doubles. In general, I think putting people under more pressure increases doubles, and the life systems, if they work, increase the pressure on people, which arguably is counterproductive, because people under pressure do dumb things. Yep, I buy it. All right. Cool. It's based so, on loads of facts, by which I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure Sean Franklin can prove it for me with data. I no longer care about doubles. So I'm, I'm glad to live here that you're also living in a post-double existence. Yeah, it's nice. I don't really have any. I don't have any opinion on what causes are more or less doubles. I just want whatever is a good game. What's a good game? Because some people would say that's one without a, without any double hits. Well, I would say if every exchange is a double, then it's probably not good. But I don't think there's anything wrong with. Yeah. Some doubles. Oh, who knows? Yeah. I, I, I think that, I think that uh, bilateral exchange is just a thing that happens in fencing, and worrying about doubles rather than uh, getting hit before doing your revenge strike is real dumb. Anyway, I'll get off that soapbox. Um, three two two seven eight. Does it suck? Um, oh. maybe. The human version of it sucks. Um, it has been bad for Longsword, but I don't think the book itself sucks as much. I think it's overall a net positive. I think it, there's a lot of really good stuff in there that we're going to talk about today, especially as far as um, teaching actions and like uh, actual like theoretical advice. Mm -hmm. What? All right. What would be your favorite thing in the book? Um, From a fencing, long, unarmed longsword fencing point of view, so we don't go on about magical rituals. Ah, oh, dude. How about the spell to make hardened iron? Um, that one works, by the way. Uh, no, so the coolest thing is probably the bit about the string pulling the tip of your sword. Um, and a close second to that is the bit about your zerch, like wrapping around like a belt or a strap. Um, both of those are really cool uh, little phrases. Um, they're great external movement cues for how the movement works. Um, do your attack like a string is pulling the tip of your sword is something that you still see used by fencing coaches yeah. today. Um, I, I used it never heard at the weekend. Book. Yeah, but like you get it from like modern fencing coaches who have never even heard of like fencing existing before people invented the rapier. Um, yeah, such yeah. a powerful like idea. Mm -hmm. So those are good. Um, the the Twerhow one, I was struggling to make my head around. Is it like doing a Twerhow and then turning your Twerhow to do one from the, the other side, inside their parry, or what's it about? I mean, well, what do you want it to mean, right? It's a cue. It's yeah. just about what it communicates to the reader. 
for me, I think it's about letting your Twitter how carry itself as opposed to like necessarily, like if you see a lot of people when they, there's a great video demo of this in Fabian's uh, Twitter how video, which we should link in the, in the episode notes for this, um, where he's got a lovely like top shot of people doing Twitter how's. And he shows the difference between a tour, which is like aimed to basically strike their sword and just like stop there, versus one that's like letting itself wrap round and sort of carry through. Um, and that one kind of, it's that idea of like letting the sword kind of wrap onto the target and, and keep moving um, instead of artificially stopping its motion with your body, um, which I think is the, the powerful thing that uh, idea, that metaphor can convey for uh, somebody trying to actually hit people with a tour how particularly in first intention. Yeah, I buy it. How about you, Steve? What's your favorite bit of the text? Well, I do like the uh, the string metaphor. Yeah, I stole like it from you. Said. <laughs> yeah. Um, some other things that I like are, um, I like the obvenden section, which um, is around the, is where the gloss for the uh, hand pressing should be. Um, where it talks about like turning away or deflecting or however you want to translate that um, with the long edge and then pointing your point to the opponent. So I think that's a pretty, we don't get very much like advice about power repost, like KDF test, text in general. So I appreciate that. And I like, um, I think we were, this came up in the HEMA Discord the other day about uh, renewals and reposts. So when you do your forschlag, you have to make your knockschlag right away. But if your opponent gets in a good position, then they can do a knockschlag before you. So it kind of gives a kind of a middling, um, you know, stance on like renewal versus repost. Like when can you do a renewal? When can you yeah. like expect your opponent to repost? Um, it doesn't really. Uh, pick a side on which one is better, just that either one of them can be like advantageous at the time. And I guess if you pick wrong, it's which it also kind of makes it difficult to parse out exactly what the author wants you to do because it's difficult to, I guess, uh, square circle of do your forschlag and then do your nachschlag right away, and also like you know, feel in the bind and pick the right move, and also, but sometimes maybe your opponent can do a knockschlag faster than you. So. Yeah. And that's, just I think that's kind of, right, yeah, I, I, I was about to say that. I think it kind of translates to the problems of actual fencing, you know, because that's what you're facing when you're actually fencing. You're facing those decisions, and it's not clear or obvious it's... which one, there's no, there's no, answer that you can turn to every time it's situation dependent it's amazing how often in kdf the answer is and then get into a bind and just feel that bind and use hard and weak better than them hard and soft like, well, i don't i don't think it happens a, a super huge amount of times um i mean usually it's like one thing and then like do a follow-up based on you know what your feeling is yeah um, I swear there's times when it's just like, and then just wind better than them. There are a couple. There are a couple. Um, yeah. How about you? What's your favorite bit? Um, good question. I think that my favorite bit is the the Ernst and Schimpf line. Um, 
Because uh, whether this fencing is uh, earnest or play, because it's basically that entire section of the intro is spelling out the fact that whenever this text was written, even if it was super early, then there was fencing being done for play in fesh schools and that there were people going around making wide parries in order to look impressive for the audience and kind of like when you when you turn the reading of that on its head away from the traditional reading then it tells us an awful lot about the the context that this would be practiced in this reminds me of something which came up uh, also on the KDF Discord today, which is the translations of Ernst and Schimpf. Um, an awful lot of, and I guess we'll probably talk a little bit about ideas here uh, in a minute anyway. Um, a lot of the time people translate Ernst, Ernest as being kind of like lethal fights, real fights, you know, fights for keeps. Um, but that's not really explicit in the word. It, it's you know it it's not a feature of Ernst as a as a word. It could be implied as such in a sort of euphemistic way, um, but it's not inherent to it. Um, so the the translation I think I'm leaning towards that I like a lot um, for Ernst and Schimpf, and then also the other one which people do all the time is Schimpf as sport, um, which is also just bad. Like that's mm -hmm. you can kind of read that as an implication of Schimpf, but it's certainly not the only meaning or implication of it and the the translation i lean towards which i think is quite nice um is shimp is for show and ernst is to win right fencing for show or to win um and the thing one of the things i like about that is that one it encapsulates a very a difference in objective um that's not baked based around outcome it's based around like how you are trying to fence, not what you are trying to achieve by fencing. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. when you're when you're fencing to win, you're fencing to to make hits or to deal a bleeding head wound in a or to kill the other dude in some horrible medieval like duel to the death with a club, or like to prove them, you know, to prove your honor in some like armored duel on horseback by shoving them out of the ring or something. So fencing to win doesn't mean that somebody's going to die. It might mean that somebody's going to die. There are some forms of fencing to win where a person's death is expected or likely, but there are plenty where it isn't. And conversely, if you imagine like the difference between a tournament final and an exhibition match, right? Fencing for show and fencing for play are two very different things. Um, you can fence for sport. Nobody's going to die. We're just fencing to find the winner. And that's a very different vibe and, and feeling to a fencing for display or to entertain or to amuse or to like show off all the cool moves i know so that somebody like hires me for a million uh marks and i stop having to like rob people on the streets um to to make my money yeah. or whatever yeah um I, th I think we we all know that the finals of a tournament are not where you're going to find your prettiest fencing <laughs> of that tournament no it is yeah exactly right it's like you you do your display fencing for the technical prize in the pools, um, and then you like you fence to win in the in the finals. Um, all right. Here's a a follow up question. Going to Steve first. What from a fencing point of view, what's your least favorite thing about the text? Um, I'm not super, not super into the uh, stepping offline every time thing. 
Yeah. Um, I don't think that that's. Is it gloss? I don't think that that's optimal. And there's no gloss for the ones where we're told to step to them, like the the shield how or the the yeah. the Scheitler. I have. Yeah, I haven't like exhaustively gone through three two two seven a to find it, but I just um, don't think that stepping aside is always like the ultimate answer to fencing. And it's also strange that we get, I, I'm pretty, I definitely have brought this up before, but I still find it strange that they both give the advice to step to the side and also tell you to go straight in with your attack. Mm. And I don't see how both of those things can be accomplished. You go straight in and off to the side, obviously. Except that's not what it says. It's clear to me. It's clear that they're telling you to step offline so that you can like outflank your opponent and like hit them from the side. Mm. So I think like they they say that like to get a good angle on them. So it's not straight in and then off to the side. It's that's my reading of it anyway. So yeah. and this is we're talking about what I don't like. So this is my. <laughs> I mean, I'm not defending. I I agree with you on this one. <laughs> all right. But, all right. Anyway, th anyway, that's my. <laughs> That's my answer. Oh, Sorry. I, I do find it, yeah, interesting that it's very prescriptive about, like, here is a rule that you should follow while fencing. And then the bits that in other sources would uh, would be exceptions to that rule are just unglossed in this. It's because the guy ran out of class because he couldn't, like, accept it. <laughs> yeah, and there's, like, there's other things that are, like, supportive of that rule. Uh, throughout, like, the techniques, there's, like, don't forget to step offline when you do things in some of the techniques, so. Yeah. Uh, T, how about you? What's your, uh, what's your favorite? Well, I was going to say something else, but now that Steve said stepping offline, I totally agree with stepping offline, but since he said I'm going to say something else anyway, and that's the Nachschlag. Um, uh, and it's not so much that I don't like the Nachschlag in principle. Um, remise is a great fencing action um, and has a big place in fencing. But I think, in terms of influence of three two seven a three two two seven a on modern HEMA, uh, the Nashlag stuff has caused so much bad fencing and bad fencing interpretation um, that it's kind of horrifying. Um, so I don't like that. I don't like it just because of that, pretty much. Um, yeah. I I think that. I don't think this is necessarily like based on accurate readings of this section. By the way, yeah. I just think that like there are. There are a common set of kind of default HEMA interpretations of what this stuff, of what the Nashlag bit means. Yeah, I'd say that, that reading, are really reading, bad. Reading this text as emphasizing the remise, so continuing attack after it's been parried, rather than preparing to deal with an opponent's attack after you've been parried, that kind of repetitive emphasis on it has led to some. Suboptimal human. More than a bit suboptimal is right. Yeah. Um, there are definitely, yeah, this is, Steve did an amazing chart on this, which I've never been able to find since, um, uh, where there's definitely a trade off between how your attack went and whether you can safely renew or whether you need to switch to like a counter repost or some sort of other defensive action before you reoffend. Um, and it's based on some combination of feeling and visuals and just gut instinct and how that person's habit works and stuff like that. Um, but the kind of right. the bad through to seven a interpretation of blindly remise every time Zorchow 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 to win is just sucky. 
So it's not a it's not a coincidence that you can't find that chart. It's because I don't really like it anymore. And the reason <laughs> is because there's an implicit assumption in that chart that um, the counterattack is like the ultimate you know scenario for a defender is the, the ultimate best possible scenario, like a uh, counterattack with opposition. And I no longer think that's the case. Mm. So. I I would say that is the best possible situation for a defender. Um, assuming it's an action which scores in the game you're playing, because it's an action which immediately finishes the exchange, right? It, the, the reason I would say it's better than a parry repost is not because it's like some sort of inherent magical better move, but just because if you do a parry, your repost might get parried, right? Whereas if you do a counterattack with opposition really well, you've hit. Um, yeah, I think um, my opinion, I don't think it's bad. I, I mean, I think it's definitely a good outcome. But I don't think it is like the one, I think it's one of many optimal outcomes and a good parry repost is another optimal outcome because a counterattack is just as, well, not just as likely, but it's also um, possible that it'll fail. Yeah, but and like... If it fails, it's riskier, right? So if you if I was gonna like put them all on a scale, I'd put the counterattack at one end and just being hit cleanly at the other end as in one case the exchange is end has ended immediately and I've been hit, and in the other case the exchange has ended immediately and they've been hit, and everything else follows falls in between that. And I don't think that's inherently saying that the counterattack is better. It's just saying that it's at it's at one extreme of the scale, right? There's no way for, right. I guess, it, attack on prep goes even beyond it, where it's like the exchange ended before it started and they were hit. Um, um, well, anyway, we're, we're getting off into muff theory time. Um, tune in for our bit, next podcast. Yeah. <laughs> talking a, a little bit about um, about the way that this text has been treated in the past. Um, Michael Chidester brought something up on the Hema Discord, shockingly which I think I'd discovered for myself independently way back in the mists of time. And that is that there is a line in 3227A about a peasant beating a master because they're brave and have the Vorschlag. And the, the verb that the peasant's doing there is sled, which both Troskler and Zabinsky translated as slay. I don't know if that's because they they look similar on the page, but the the root verb there, correct me when I'm wrong, is uh, slagen, hit, and in the very same line, they translated that as strike. So, in this particular instance, they'd looked at a word and chosen to pick a meaning which is kind of there in the background of killing someone, but only in that specific instance and not elsewhere in the text. Which kind of kind of goes to show how frequently this being a killing art gets baked into translation without necessarily having any support in the text. You can just read the piece about yeah uh, peasants hit masters sometimes. Yeah, you know this is just you can you can sometimes hit the dude if you just like go for it. Um with confidence um another like there's a lot of little bits and pieces like that where ideas of somebody's framing of what fencing was about whether it's real fighting or whatever 
and in particular whether it's real fighting um, gets baked into how they understand words to work. Um, uh, I don't think it's turned up much, it turns up much in this one, but uh, the translation of ansets as impale um, you see occasionally. Um, hmm. And it's very, very like uh, derived from the idea of stabbing things with sharp swords and running through and stuff. Um, and that is questionable at best as a translation. But yeah, because 327A was accessible so early, um, and in particular, one of the first things I think that was kind of downloadably accessible, um, some of the early Ringek and Danzig and stuff were only published in print translation. Um, that means that some of these early translation ideas both were a reflection of what people thought about the point of KDF and also reinforced it. Uh, and stepping away from those and looking at what the text kind of actually intrinsically says uh, is, I think, a really valuable exercise if you're going to try and work with it. Do we have anything else to add? I think, Steve, you wanted to talk about cutting advice. Yeah, um, I think we, well, originally this episode was about uh, prescriptivism in the, in the text, which I think it still kind of is about, but also is like a wrap up. Um, and I guess on that subject, I wanted to mention the uh, prescriptive advice about how to hold a sword which is not something that's in a lot of different sources. And basically it says, uh, hold it, I'll just read it. So the sword is like a set of scales so that the if the blade's large and heavy, the pommel must also be heavy. Therefore, uh, use your sword certainly and securely. To use your sword certainly and securely, grip it with both hands between the guard and the pommel because you hold the sword with much more certainty like this than when you grip it with one hand on the pommel. Um, you also strike harder and more strongly because the pommel overthrows itself and swings itself in harmony with the strike. And the strike then arrives much harder than when you grip the sword by the pommel, which restrains the pommel so that the strike can't come strongly or correctly. Um, so regardless of your opinion on whether um, holding the sword between the pommel or gripping the pommel is, is better, um, I think the explanation that it gives is like incorrect physics, <laughs> I guess, because it seems to be saying that, uh, you know, the pommel overthrows itself because the sword's a set of scales. So it's saying that like when you're swinging, um, if you grip between the guard and the pommel, mm. the pommel is helping you swing because it's swinging itself back as the, uh, as the blade swings forward. Yeah. But you're not the holding only way... it on the the point of rotation. Right, yeah. The only way that would be the case is if you were rotating it like around your hands. And that doesn't mm -hmm. that's that's not how we cut. The, the the axis of rotation is like out beyond the pommel usually, unless you're doing like a really bad cut. <laughs> and in fact, when we're when we're test cutting, quite often the style of cutting that people use doesn't have the sword turning in the hands. It isn't rotating. It's just going it's going quick enough that it doesn't need to. Yeah, the rotation yeah. the center of rotation is somewhere like in the uh um roughly in the shoulders or so of the person. Yeah. Um 
I think the exact. I, I think Sean Franklin uh, did like a, a thing where he took a video of him cutting and like mapped out where the center of rotation moved throughout the cut, and it's it's pretty interesting. Um, I guess if I find it, we'll put it in the show notes. But basically, the point moves like moves around throughout the cut, but it's never actually inside a. Um, it's never the person's hands because that would just be that cut. I'll just be a little flick, right? I have seen some approaches to teaching cutting based on like the center of rotation being inside the hands, but they don't work very well. Yeah. Uh, I would not but, recommend trying it for a number of reasons. Yeah. I, I but as far as the, uh, the hands being on the handle, I think that advice is fine. I don't think it's something that you should religiously follow all the time, but I think it's, especially when you're cutting, I think it's, um, it, it reduces your chances of making mis- a mistake, I guess, because it's, it's, um, uh, I'm not like a cutting expert, but as far as I understand, it helps your, um, you know, it helps your hands act as one unit instead of being separate, which reduces the chances of making a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. The, the big advantage of just bringing the hands together. It's why a lot of people will cut better if you told them to take their second hand off the sword. Um, in my experience of trying to coach people to cut. Hello, Michael. Hello. Sorry, I'm late. <laughs> no worries. Um, so we, we've just been talking a little bit, so uh, a little bit, like half an hour or so, about 3227A. Firing off the hip, what's your favorite thing about 3227A? My favorite thing is that it is not based on RDL. <laughs> so it's another data point. Controversial. Yeah, yeah. So it, it basically, it's somebody who had question mark amount of familiarity with like the network system, but he was using basically the same commentary format that we see in the whole RDL tradition, um, but from a completely different perspective. So we, as far as we can tell, he's not rehashing anything that anybody else wrote besides Lichtenauer, he's offering sort of an untainted perspective. So we can use that to try and ask questions about what Lichtenauer might have been teaching as opposed to what Ringek was teaching or any of the other definable historical masters that that are associated with the RDL tradition, right? So we could look at that as expressing one fencing master's opinion about Lichtenauer's teachings and here we get a second opinion and we can look at how they differ and where they line up perfectly and learn things from that. Yeah, I, I guess that we can look at like the, the fair how and say this as an action looks very, very similar. Mm-hmm. But if we look at the war and that, we can see, we can contrast the two explanations. Right, or Hendedruken where they have nothing in common at all and say, what the hell is happening with pressing hands? Yeah. Um, follow-up question. What's your least favorite thing about it? The fact that it's only half finished. <laughs> um, we don't have a lot of the sections that are most puzzling to us in RDL, um, in some cases, like the Scheidelhau, are just not commented. So I really kind of wish that we had more information about some of the more obscure parts, but he didn't ever finish his commentary. And some of the commentary that was written seems pretty clearly only half done, like he started it and then didn't finish it in individual sections even. So 
whatever this guy knew about Lichtenauer, we're clearly only seeing about half of it. Yeah, I, I think that just the the question marks around the dating and the origin and the context really really reduce its utility a little bit for me. It's it's cool that it has others masters names and it's cool that we can tie the ownership of the book to like the the course of the Habsburgs circa 1500 but yeah if we just had a firmer date that would make me so happy sure and I mean there's also questions of authorship we don't know who this guy was or what his training was and that's maybe equally true of the RDL gloss um, yes. Unless we assume that Ringek wrote all the all the all three of them. <laughs> yeah, which, Sigmund the Lion, who wrote all of them. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But whichever ones he didn't write, we have no clue where they came from. And the only reason why we can place any confidence in them would be, well, I guess there's many reasons. But one of them would be because they're close enough to the one guy whose name we know, which is Ringek, that we can sort of assume they were um, on the same page about most things. But if we just take like the Danzig glass in isolation, that one doesn't have any more authority than 327A either on its own merits, because all these things came to us with no names and no history behind how they came to be that we know of, which is frustrating to try to understand where this whole tradition came from. <clears throat> I, I do appreciate that it does actually have some explanation because there are a really cool text like Wittenvilla that are, mm -hmm. are, what can I say, an alternative approach to KDF or something it's like it. An approach to fencing, yeah. is what I would say. Uh, okay. And so they, it talks about, you know, um, macros and, uh, or, um, uh, I forget what else is in there. Flug even, I think, is in there. Um, hard and soft, but it doesn't have enough gloss to be particularly useful so i think this is actually a point that's maybe worth mentioning um is that or worth reiterating i'm sure we went into this at some like podcast not that i ever listened back to any of our episodes um is that kdf is not all offense the thing we call kdf is not all of what was fencing in germany at the time and is almost certainly not even like close to the majority of it at least in the early time in the early periods uh, it seems to have become more formally yeah, through the Marx uh, monopoly yeah, and everything. Official fencing by yeah, the later 15th century, but in the earlier half, it's just one, of, probably one of many. And this harks back to some of what Kendra said on the last podcast: that the idea of these magic technical KDF technical words like doesn't really hold up to much. They're just words that people used because they wanted to use them to talk about stuff. Names of guards are more of a comparison, but things like chasing after someone it's like okay cool those are those are just words about fencing that people use because they're talking about fencing and that's the way they describe movement is i think something that we miss a lot because our source the surviving source base is so incredibly focused on this one specific gloss tradition um to the exclusion of other yeah. or i think you could even go even further and be like that the the surviving unarmored longsword stuff so dominated by this area of southern Germany and like the the Bavarians and, and the Habsburgs 
by what seems to have been one tradition which became dominant in that area, but wasn't necessarily the only or the like Wittenweiler is Swiss, right? Um, so yeah. um, he's using German words, but whether he's meaning them as quote KDF technical terms. Also, the idea of calling it KDF, I just kind of hate. That's a, I think, a <laughs> ship which has long sailed. Um, what would you rather call it in in a perfect team of world while we're while we're on our soapbox? Why would you rather call this this? Thing? Um, uh, like even just making the point to say something as simple as Lichtenauer's KDF or Lichtenauer derived KDF or whatever. Um, uh, pseudo Lichtenauer's fencing art. Yeah, like yeah, this is the point. KDF just means art of fencing, right? Like system of fencing, skill of fencing, craft of fencing. It's like it's just a word for fencing. Any fencing master can teach you the craft of fencing. That's why they're a freaking fencing master. The oh, idea no, that it's uh, you had KDF uh, and then you uh, had like common fencing masters who didn't teach KDF is just not how anybody would have talked in the 1420s. Go on. Uh, Zettel-based KDF. Yes, Zettel-based fencing. That's it. That's what I wanted. Yeah. Like It's the I connection think... to the Zettel that characterizes the tr this tradition. I think that... Uh... Aganoff's book includes a little poem about a settle factor or a, a fencer who fended to the settle. Yeah. <clears throat> like the, that's a much, much better characterization of the Lichtenauer fencing uh, so be, tradition. What you're saying is we need KDZ, KDZ. Kunstbissettel. Yeah, right. let's change the names of the channels uh, immediately. Is, is Meyer technically KDZ also? Uh, Meyer is not a uh, Zettel gloss, so I would say no. But that's he an opinion which is going to get me some hatred. He does, but he doesn't structure his teaching as a gloss on it. How about... Meyer is very clearly engaging with the Zettel um, and the tradition in a different way, which is his right as a like living master engaging with a living tradition over 150 years after it appears to have originated. Um, yeah. But from the kind of process of looking back at all of history, you know, and, and looking at separate time slices of it, um, it's pretty clear he's doing something quite different um, in how he's engaging with and structuring the material. I was working on an article a couple of years ago that was trying to explain the Lichtenauer tradition purely from the perspective of what people are doing with the settle. I never actually finished it. Maybe I should work on that somewhere, but it doesn't create the same landscape that we usually talk about. If you just ask the question of direct transmission from Lichtenauer and indirect transmission, and we don't know if there was any transmission at all, it sort of reshuffles the whole fencing manual deck. Yeah. Um, in an interesting and useful way, I think, if what you care about is Lichtenauer's original teachings. Like, I think you can almost make the argument that you have like the, the structure of commentaries on the Zadel as a way to frame and teach fencing versus the Marx Bruder living tradition of longsword fencing and reactions to and developments based on that, which is clearly has a Zadel based origination point, but then, or sorry, correction, has origin point, origination point, which is either based on the Zadel or based on the things which were codified into the Zadel. Like it might come from the same primordial soup of fencing that got turned into the Zadel. Um, right. My recollection is that the Marx Bruder seemed to be teaching the five strikes, but not necessarily the Hauptstücke. Like there's a couple terms that are Hauptstücke that appear 
in their teachings, but not any kind of structured group of 12 things the way they teach five strikes. Uh, so they only had the, the first half of the system. Right, which could tie into our pet theory about it being a Frankenstein-ish two system graft or just just, you know, how they what parts they liked. I mean, yeah, but like the the way people were engaging with it as a living text uh, as a living taught tradition of fencing from master to master with a certification process and so on seems to be different to the way they were engaging with it as a um, as a glossary on a text like explanation of fencing. Um, I think that it's people stop composing new glosses really early, mostly. Um, well, like 1490s, you have Martin Cyber making up his entire new zettle, mm-hmm. and but that phrase "new zettle," new new text, uh, appears somewhere else in the corner well, of my also, mind. Somewhere. The interesting thing about uh, phrasing "new zettle" is yeah. it positions it in relation to the existing zettle. Yeah. Like it says it's not the, um, independent of it. Yeah, the final uh, piece of Lev, when they're, uh, um, especially the Augsburg version, um, that might be the only one that has it, but it's like in the heading of the uh, winding version, which Lev doesn't, or uh, Augsburg Lev does not have very many headings to begin mm-hmm. with, and yeah. but the heading of that says, um, Here's the conclusion of the new settle. Yeah, I always wonder what that's referring to. Or what yeah, me implying. too. That's a new copy of the text, isn't it? <laughs> it? It could be, yeah, that he's just talking about the glosses being the new settle, even. Or Lichtenauer's settle is newer than another one that we don't know about. I'll be, uh, I'll be honest, I'm going to say something controversial in this room. You? I, really? I, know, I don't like leaving Zettel untranslated. Um, because yeah, I, I think that it's like making the text more mysterious than it is. I, I mean, I 100% agree, but also all the translations that I use kind of suck. So I don't oh, use them in conversation yeah. as much because they're not good. I mean, in, we've in talked my, about the etymology of Zettel before, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think that in my translation, which will never see the light of day, I just went for text. I've gone with um, record, transcription. Recital is a fun one because it kind of sounds like title. Um, oh, but like schedule is also a perfectly legitimate translation in the legal sense, right? Like we, we, the American drug laws divide drugs into schedules and a lot of other laws do schedules as well. But it means it's a list, but it also means like scrap of paper. So it's not necessarily like a formal list even. It's like, a weird uh... word to use for what it's describing. In my opinion, I like receipts. Incidentally, by the way, schedule is from the same Latin root as Zettel is. Zettel is yeah, a German import from Latin. Saying, yeah. yeah. Um, but me, but if you say schedule, it doesn't make sense to anybody unless you explain it every time. My uh, my thing with Zettel is that like it's the title, so I don't have to translate it. <laughs> it's a strong argument. That's, that's my workaround. <laughs> it's the title of the poem, the Zettel. But yeah, like I think I can't remember where we got into this topic from, but the there's a lot of bad HEMA takes, which I think stem from confusing glosses on the ZL or the relatively well documented fencing tradition, which appears to have been preserved through the Marx Bruder and developed by Meyer and Co. Although Meyer, of course, wasn't a Marx Bruder as far as we know. Um uh 
with all of quote German fencing or all of quote longsword fencing or whatever. Um, and that leads to a lot of bad takes. And it's nice to use language that makes it clear that this is just a subset of fencing and not all of it, uh, not even in probably like Bavaria and Nuremberg in the 1420s. So I have a question that I think I asked on the last episode of um, the first season of Fencing by the Book. Um, and that is, what do we think a fencer who's doing proper 3227A fencer, fencing would look like? And this isn't exactly, it's it's not a, like an answerable question, but... Can I just say my trick to Laga and like leave it there? You could. What, they'll be wearing elf shoes? Yeah, but doing like balestra lunges in them. Yeah. Um, I, I think because my tech has truly unified sport in history. I think that some of the core actions that would highlight that for me that somebody's trying to do three two two seven eight would be uh, turning their sword to thrust all four exposures of the body, as well as cutting to all four exposures when they're in distance, which isn't something that people necessarily associate with 32278, but it's something that the text just keeps going on and on about. I think long-edge parries um, are an obvious one. Um, offline engagement, offline attacking, stepping in some form, however you want to interpret that, but there clearly should be some of it, at least, um, has got to be one. Um, if, they, if they went through the full cycle of the flourish before getting into fencing, I'd at least know that they're trying to go by the book. Yeah, they should do the fl the full flourish at like the start of every competition match. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's quite funny. The other weekend, I tried to go through as many of the other masters' plays as I could remember during fencing. And I gotta say, if you see somebody in like left plow just going for an ansets in every single exchange. Would you necessarily go, oh, they must be doing it according to this book? Yeah, it's it's hard to really uniquely identify, I think, especially with the presence of RDL as a kind of secondary and more major uh, set of sources based on the same, the same poem. But Abwenden and some of the offline footwork stuff and some of the emphasis of like thrusting to all the openings um, feel like the things you could maybe try and call out as independent. What would you yeah, say, Steven? Well, I would think, I think that it's a little bit, I mean, it's already difficult for RDL to answer this question, but I think it's a little bit more difficult for 3227A because it's more theory-based than, like, than technique-based, I guess. So for RDL, you could at least say, like, Oh, they're you know doing all the things that look like our kata of you know the pieces of of uh, RDL, and for this it's you couldn't even really do that. There are some pieces that are described, but by and large, it's mostly advice, and really it's mostly like pretty good advice. So it's mostly pretty good general fencing advice, um, which makes it you know even harder to pin down like what exactly is 3227A and what is not. So um, as far as far as specific things I would look for, probably um, cutting into a thrust as a as a go to action, um, which, you know, a lot of people would also say about 
RDL. Um, I would say, you know, left foot forward like RDL, but I also wouldn't be as strict about that as I would for RDL. Um, you know, a lot of the forward knock stuff is is hard to pin down. Like, you know, if somebody goes directly from the force log into the knock log, like, are they doing that because of three two two seven A or because they just feel like attacking over and over again? That's kind of hard to say, but I guess. Um, Could we argue my... that that three two two seven A puts more emphasis on weak actions, or did we disprove that? I think you could. I think you could say that, uh, like yielding actions. Yeah, know? that they're more likely to use yielding strategies than an RDL offensive. I would entirely yeah. unreasonable. Yeah, I would. I would definitely agree with that. Actually, so yeah, um, cutting into a stab, left foot forward, kind of, but not really. Um, yielding actions, um, stabbing immediately as soon as you're half an L away. I guess. <laughs> I think that again, 327A gives you permission to step backwards too. Right, yeah, yeah. So there you go. More fencing on the ratchet. Yeah. So put all that stuff together and add in some general logical, you know, not doing stupid things when fencing, and I'd say you have your 3227A fencer. In my opinion, anyway. All right, I've got one last question before we wrap up. How would you like to see? the modern HEMA movement engage with this text going forwards. Michael Chittister first. Uh that's that's a tough question. I'll take the I'll take a controversial stand though, mm. which is I think that it can only be studied intelligently with a with a background of RDL. I think that you have to start with RDL and if you start with 3227A then you're not going to know what you're looking at and you're going to fall into every pitfall that's present in the text that we've spent 20 or 30 years now trying to climb out of again. Um, whereas because we didn't have RDL when we started looking at E27A, for me, that was almost 20 years ago. Um, we barely had Rengek. So I think you have to start with those partly because they're more concrete in what they're telling you to do and partly because there's a bigger body of knowledge around how to interpret them and from there you can start reading 3227a as a valuable supplement and sort of elaboration on what they're teaching whereas if you if a person who is trying is going to pick up their first fencing manual chooses 3227a they're going to have a hard time and they're going to go to all kinds of weird places and I've seen that many times, and I see it still, even though I tried to put together a more sensible translation, people still read it and go to weird places with it. So you can't look at it in isolation. It just doesn't work. So I would like to see HEMA study it more, but study it in conjunction with RDL. Yeah. How about you, Steve? Um, I think that coaches should tell people to cut as if there's a string tied to the tip of their sword <laughs> and being pulled into the other person. And they should use more cues like that. And that's how people should engage with it. Boom. Um, that is a tough one. I think probably the biggest thing I would like to see change about how people are engaging with it is to abandon some of the older translations that bake in implicit ideas which aren't present in the text, um, particularly ideas around real deadly murder, um, 
and are more willing to engage with like engage with it on its own merits as a secondary slash alternative gloss of the Zadal. Um, as opposed to some kind of magic, this is how real deadly sword fights worked um, thing that it was for a while. And when, what would the, the way to put it be? I say it sometimes as like the, well, I don't like KDF word, but you know what I mean, right? The KDF is was mostly sport hypothesis where yes, real sword fighting, real quote unquote sword fighting did happen, but it was not all of sword fighting and it probably wasn't the core intrinsic goal by which all of this sword fighting was judged. Um, Ernst doesn't mean lethal, Schimpf doesn't mean sporting, um, abandon these ideas and try and understand what was actually going on in the early um, to understand and engage with the text more effectively. Yeah. I think my answer would be that it would be nice. Let me just think for a second. I think it's a good idea to ask ourselves what's HEMA actually trying to do? Uh, as always, a bit of navel gazing. Are we trying to uh, build up a, a modern sword sport? Are we trying to recreate these fencing systems? And if if you're trying to make a modern sword sport, then you don't need to look at these old books at all. If we are going to ask questions about um, are we doing what these old texts say, then it's important to look at the the context and the culture that they were coming out of. And what's interesting for me is that on, in the last year or so, I've been doing an awful lot of digging into the 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 occasions in which we see unarmored longsword fencing happening, and especially early on. And apart from probably Talaga, um, I'm not sure how much we see um, people who say that they do HEMA actually engaging with the, how sword fighting would have been practiced back in, I don't know, let's say 1450 Augsburg. There we go. That's my hill to die on. I mean, I'm not doing it either. I go to the park on a Saturday and we have a little fence and nobody dies and that's quite nice. Any other bombshells or should we leave it there? All right. Cool. Well, thank you for listening to Fencing by the Book. This has been the end of our 3227A mini-series. I've been your host, Mike Smorridge, and joining us this week have been Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Thanks for listening. Dun, dun, dun. Hurrah! Series two done. So, power and fight next. <laughs> I was thinking Rose.